The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. We are periodically working our way through Matthew's account of the Olivet Discourse, and this morning I want to do another installment in that. Now, at Berean Bible Church, we hold to the full preterist view of eschatology. I think most of you probably understand that. And that view sees the second coming of Christ as a past event that happened in AD 70 and was a judgment and removal of the old covenant system. The old heaven and earth passed away. It was And it established fully the kingdom of God, the new covenant, the new heavens and the new earth. And... We believe that Yeshua did exactly what He said He would do when He said He was going to come soon, He was going to come quickly, He was going to come shortly, He was going to come to that generation, He was going to come while some of those people were still alive. All that was to happen in the first century. We believe it. And there's no mention anywhere in Scripture of a third coming. Now, as we study this chapter... We have to keep it in its context. Remember, context is king when it comes to interpretation. We need to remember that this discourse, in this discourse, the Lord is answering questions that the disciples asked Him about the destruction of the temple, about the sign of His presence, about the end of the age. And as we work our way through this discourse, we need to fight the temptation to read this as if it was written to us in the 21st century. You know, so many people read their Bible that way. Look, look what it says. It's to us. It's not a newspaper. You didn't get it that morning. Okay? Yeshua was speaking in this discourse to His disciples in the first century, and He's answering their questions, and we need to look at it and keep it in that context. Now, we saw in our last study that our Lord told the disciples that they would see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet, which Luke explained as Jerusalem being surrounded by armies. And when they did, there would come a time of great tribulation. Verse 21 of Matthew 24 says, For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. Now we saw in this study that this verse, the great tribulation that it talks about here, is past. Sorry to disappoint you, but it's over. And all you people today, all these dispensationals out there today, everything that's happening in our world, oh, that's a sign of the end, sign of the end. Not, not, none of it's a sign of the end. The end has ended a long time ago. All right? It's just a sign of depravity. It's not a sign of end times. All right? The tribulation was the destruction of Jerusalem as the context of this Gospel and the parallel accounts make abundantly clear. Now, we need to realize the scope of the great tribulation upon the people of Israel. It's not just those in Jerusalem that suffered and died, but all over Palestine. The whole country felt the judgment of God. Josephus said this, There was not a Syrian city which did not slay their Jewish inhabitants and were more bitter enemies than were to us than were to the Romans themselves. So Yeshua said, there's not going to be anything like it. There's not going to be a time like this destruction. And we ended our study last time with verse 29. 
And for our study this morning, I want to focus, go back to verse 29, but we're just going to look at the last half of it, because we didn't get to the last half last time. And I think that most preterists misinterpret this verse. Now, that sounds kind of arrogant, maybe, saying that. And I don't mean to be, but hopefully by the time we're done, you'll see what I mean. But if you don't understand the divine counsel viewpoint, you're going to miss what this verse is saying. All right? And many do miss it. And so let's look at this and see if we can make some sense of it this morning. Matthew 24, 29 says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. Now, modern commentators generally understand this and what follows as the end of the world. And that's why they think it hasn't happened yet. I mean, that makes sense, right? But the words immediately after the tribulation of those days shows us that it's not talking about a distant event. It's something immediately to follow the tribulation that was just mentioned, and that was the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. John Gill writing in 1809, said this. Verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, that is, immediately after the distress the Jews would be in through the siege of Jerusalem and the calamities attending it, just upon the destruction of that city and the temple in it, with the whole nation of Jews shall the following things come to pass. And that one day with the Lord is as a thousand years, will not answer to the word immediately, or show that it should be understood of two thousand years after. Besides, all the following things were to be fulfilled before that present generation in which Christ lived passed away, Matthew twenty four thirty four, and therefore must be understood of things that should directly and immediately take place upon or at the destruction of the city. And temple. Now, if you are not familiar with the apocalyptic language of the Tanakh, you're not going to understand what Christ is saying here. Because it does sound like the end of the world. But if we're familiar with the first three quarters of our Bible, which, sadly to say, most Christians aren't. You know, most people just take the Bible, they start the New Testament, and they just say, I know what a star is, and I know what the moon is, and I know what falling means, so they, the whole universe is collapsing. Well, you've got to be familiar with the first three quarters. The Tanakh, what people call the Old Testament, because all that language is drawn from there. I mean, this idea is seen clearly as we look at passages like Isaiah 13 where mention is made of the destruction of Babylon using language that sounds like the end of the world. And we looked at that in our last study of Matthew. Uh, Isaiah 34, we have a description of the fall of Edom using the same language. Nahum 1 uses this apocalyptic language of the destruction of Nineveh. And Ezekiel 32 uses this language to speak of Egypt's destruction. It's not worldwide. Now, for our study this morning, as I said, we're just going to focus on the last half of verse 29. And the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. We see the same language in the book of Revelation, in chapter 6, 12, and 13. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood, 
and the stars of the sky fell to the earth, as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. So John in Revelation is saying the same thing that Matthew says in Matthew 24. He says, the stars will fall from heaven. John says, the stars of the sky will fall to the earth. Now, let me ask you a question. Is this to be taken literally? Can it be taken literally? What would happen if a star fell to the earth? (laughs) Big crater. (laughs) Stars are way bigger than the earth. I mean, how does this even happen? Okay? Are the literal stars going to just fall out of heaven and where are they going to land? They're all going to come to earth? You know, here's the thing. Many think this is literal. Okay? And they take a wooden, literal approach to understanding Scripture, which really destroys Scripture. They see this as the end of the world. Everything's dissolved. And that's why, again, they they think it hasn't happened yet because we're not at the end of the world. They see it as a cosmic collapse. But I don't think this is talking about literal stars, balls of fire. The word stars is found 51 times in the ESV. Most uses refer to a large number. So when they want to talk about a large number, they use the word stars. Deuteronomy 1.10 Yahweh your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven. Now, stars is used of literal stars. And I think that's how it's used here. Look at the heavens. You see all those lights. Bright lights in the sky. But here's what most people, I think, don't understand. Stars are also used to speak of divine beings. All right? We see this in Deuteronomy 4.19. And beware, lest you raise your eyes to heaven. And when God is talking to Israel here, and you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all right, and the hosts of heaven, and you'll be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. Things that Yahweh your God has allotted to the peoples under the whole heaven. Now here stars and hosts of heaven refer to sentient created beings which reside in the heavens. Yahweh has existed from all eternity. We understand that, right? Yahweh being the three persons of the divine trinity, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. But at some point in time, and we don't have any idea when, God created a family of divine beings. A divine council that He dwells with. That lives with Him in His throne room. He created these lesser gods, these angels, to be part of His family. Scripture calls it the divine council. Now, then sometime after that, He created man. And we see that And Job talks about when God made creation, when He created man, that the stars rejoiced. Notice here that these stars have been allotted to the peoples. Allotted to all the peoples. The word allotted here is the Hebrew halach, which literally means apportioned or assigned. And here we are told that Yahweh has assigned the stars, the hosts of heaven, to the peoples of the earth, non-Israelites. If you're not familiar with this whole concept of the Divine Council, I would encourage you to go back to our study through Ephesians. And I did six messages in chapter 6 on spiritual warfare. And that will give you a good view of the Divine Council. But here's what happened. God created man. Man just continually rebelled against God no matter what God did. Man rebelled. 
Genesis 6, we got the you know, incursion from heaven comes down and joins with man. And by the Tower of Babel, men are just revolting against God. So God said, that's enough, I'm done with you. And He basically leaves all mankind and says, I'm done, I'm finished. Here, here's some other gods that I've created. Those, they're your gods. And then in chapter 12, God starts all over with Abraham and calls Israel. So now God has a people. Israel are His people. All the rest of the people, they have these gods. And that's why he says he has allotted these gods to the people. They're your gods. I'm Israel's God. Israel, he says, you don't worship those gods. Those gods are for the Gentiles. Now, speaking of judgment that was to come upon disobedient Israel, Moses said this, All the nations will say, why has Yahweh done this to this land? What caused the heart of this great... heat of this great anger. Then people will say it is because they abandoned the covenant of Yahweh, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt and went and served other gods. So these children of Israel, God delivers them from bondage and they go and serve other gods and he worshiped them. Gods whom they had not known and whom had not been allotted to them Therefore, the anger of Yahweh was kindled against this land, bringing upon it all the curses written in the book. The gods that Israel was worshiping were not allotted to them. Those gods had been allotted to the nations. In Judges 5.12, it says, From heaven the stars fought. Now, is this called balls of gases fighting with each other or something? From their courses they fought against Sisera. So here the stars are fighting for Israel against Sisera. Job 38. This is the verse I talked about earlier. This is talking about creation. When God created the world, it says, the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy. So they're there at creation, these stars, these sons of God. And stars and sons of God are synonymous. They're referring to the divine council members. They're referring to what you could call watchers other divine beings. Isaiah 14, 13 says, You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. This is a language directed to a king, but behind the king, he's talking to a divine being. And this divine being says, I'm going to set my throne above the stars of God. Not talking about balls of gas here again, but... Great created beings. Daniel 8.10 It grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. Again, this is not talking about balls of gas. This is talking about gods. Jude 1.13 Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Now here Jude is using an allusion from Enoch and talking about these wandering stars. These are gods. So let's look at Enoch, see what he's got to say about First Enoch 80, 6-8. And many of the chiefs of the stars shall transgress the order prescribed. Now again, is this balls of gas transgressing something? No. Okay? And these shall alter their orbits and tasks, and not appear at the seasons prescribed for them. 
And the whole order of the stars shall be concealed from the sinners. And the thoughts of those on the earth shall err concerning them. And they shall be altered from all their ways. Yea, they shall err and take them to be gods. And evil shall be multiplied upon them, and punishment shall come upon them, so to destroy all. So the wandering stars that Jude speaks of is a common ancient Jewish idiom in both the Tanakh and the Pseudepigrapha for divine celestial beings. Now in the ancient world, the stars were also called hosts of heaven. And these are equated with deities. In the Tanakh, the stars of heaven were also called heavenly hosts. Now in our text in Matthew 24-29, it talks about the powers of heaven being shaken. Well, the powers of heaven are these hosts of heaven. Now the phrase hosts of heaven is found 19 times in the ESV, And 18 of its uses refer to divine beings. Look at 1 Kings 22. This is a good text if you want to talk to somebody about the divine council viewpoint because this this shows the divine council in action. And Micaiah said, Therefore, hear the word of Yahweh. I saw Yahweh sitting on a throne. He's in the throne room, okay? The prophets of God had access to the throne room of God. This is where God gave them instruction. So he sees God on the throne, and he says, and all the hosts of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and his left. So we have a throne room scene here with Yahweh and the divine council, and Micaiah's there. And here we see the interaction between Yahweh and these gods. We see the mention of the hosts of heaven here, which stand before Yahweh. It's a reference to divine beings. The hosts of heaven are not just stars in the night sky. Look at Nehemiah 9.6. You are Yahweh, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. You preserve all of them, and the hosts of heaven worships you. Now, Can non-living creatures worship God? No. These are created beings, and they worship Yahweh. Clearly, the hosts of heaven refers to created divine beings that reside in the heavens. Psalm 29, 1 and 2. Ascribe to Yahweh, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to Yahweh glory and strength. Ascribe to Yahweh the glory due His name. Worship Yahweh in the splendor of of holiness. Again, these are heavenly beings being called to worship God. Here, the heavenly beings are Ben-El. They're called, they're sons of God. They're called to worship. We see in Psalm 97 tells us that Yahweh is exalted above the gods. For you, O Yahweh, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Now, if there are no other gods then this verse is saying that Yahweh is far above things that don't exist. Now, is that a compliment? Is that somehow honoring God? God, you're far above nothing! That doesn't make any sense, people. Okay? It just doesn't. Psalm 135, 5 and 6. For I know that Yahweh is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever Yahweh pleases, He does. In heaven, on earth, in the seas, and all the deeps. Yahweh is the supreme ruler over all Elohim. We see this demonstrated in Exodus 12. Yahweh is above all the gods. 
All right? Exodus 12, 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. We get that, right? We understand Exodus as God's, you know, the Passover. He's delivering them. But watch this. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. All these plagues are against gods of Egypt. God is showing you like to worship frogs. Look at this. You like to worship gnats? Look at this. He's showing them his superiority. All these. He says, I am Yahweh. And then in recounting the Exodus story, Numbers 33 says this. While the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn, whom Yahweh had struck down among them, on their gods also, Yahweh executed judgment. So there was a, a destruction of the firstborn and there was also judgment against the gods. Not just on earthly judgment, but a heavenly judgment was taking place also. All right, let's go back to 1 Kings, that throne room scene. And Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of Yahweh. I saw Yahweh sitting on a throne and all the hosts of heaven standing beside him, on his right hand and on his left. And Yahweh said, Who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing, and another said another thing. So these gods are having a conversation here. God says, hey, who wants to, who wants to do this? Alright, who's going to entice Ahab? So they're talking it over. These divine beings who are part of the council. And it says, then a spirit came forward and stood before Yahweh, saying, I'll entice him. And Yahweh said to him, by what means? And he said, I'll go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. I'll go into all his prophets and I'll lie and I'll tell them, go on, you're going to win the battle. And he said, you are to entice him, God says. And you shall succeed. Go out and do it. So this vision seen by Micaiah shows that Yahweh is in complete control of everything that's happening here. But this divine counsel comes and he's taking suggestions. And he only approves the course of action that suits his purpose. Which in this case was to bring about the death of the evil King Ahab. So when our text talking about stars falling, powers of heaven being shaken, is about the judgment of gods that also happened at the same time as the destruction of Jerusalem. There's a heavenly war going on. There's an earthly war going on. Psalm 82 talks about this judgment. Psalm 82 verse 1 says, God has taken His place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, He holds judgment. Now, this verse is butchered by a lot of translations. Okay, The word God there, God has taken His counsel, is Elohim. The word God's there on the last line is also Elohim. But many translations translate the second time as rulers or judges. They take the same exact Hebrew word and they translate it differently because they don't believe in the divine counsel. So it's like, well, He must be judging... You know, judges or judging rulers or something. We've talked about this before, but Elohim is never used of anybody but a divine being or somebody in the divine realm. Okay? They're in Elohim. They're in the spirit realm. All right. Let's drop down to verse 6 through 8. God is speaking. He said, I said you are gods, Elohim, sons of the Most High, all of you, nevertheless, like men you shall die. 
Now, if they're men, judges he's talking to, most men do die like men, okay? But gods don't. You'll fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge of the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. So Yahweh is saying here that he's going to judge the disobedient gods. He is going to take away their immortality. Now, the prophet Isaiah tells of their coming judgment in a couple of passages. Look at Isaiah 34, 4 and 5. All the hosts of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Okay? The sword is drinking of the heavens, and behold, descends for judgment on Edom. So we see both. Upon the people I have devoted to destruction. So like the host of the nations that come against the Messiah are going to be slain, the host of heaven who rules these earthly nations, they're also going to be defeated. The sword wielded by the Messiah will drink its fill of the heavens as well as on earth. Now we're told in verse 4 here that the host of heaven shall rot away. The Hebrew here is machach and literally means waste away or decay. Zechariah 14.12, the same Hebrew root word machach, is used to describe the fate of those who come against Jerusalem at the end of the age. Now, there's a similarity that we see between Isaiah 34.4 and 2 Peter 3.10-12 that I think deserves some of our attention. Now, Peter speaks of an end-time fire in the heavens which will melt and dissolve the elements. I think probably all of you are familiar with the Peter, 2 Peter passage. Let's read it. The day of the Lord will come as a thief. The heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are to thus be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the earthly bodies will melt as they burn. Now, if you're a preterist, there's no doubt you're familiar with this Greek word here for heavenly bodies, or some translations just translated as elements. It's stoicheion. All right, stoicheion, most often translated by preterists, is elements of religious training or ceremonial principles that are common with the worship of Jews. So they see the heavenly bodies or elements, how it's translated here in other translations as being Judaism is destroyed. They just kind of leave it at that. Now, MacArthur takes elements as from the periodic table and says these are just, you know, little elements going to burn up. In other words, a physical, literal burning up. Well, obviously, stoicheion is not about atoms or the destruction of the universe. The Greek word stoicheion translated heavenly bodies or elements in 2 Peter 3 is understood by many scholars to refer to heavenly spirits. And I think we miss that. A lot of prayers miss that. This understanding can be seen in several passages written by the Apostle Paul. Let's look first at a text that doesn't use it this way, because it's used in different ways. In Galatians 4.3, In the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elemental principles of the world. All right? This is stoheion, elemental principles. Now, Galatians is focused on the problem of Jewish converts wanting to require Gentile believers to obey the law and keep, keep all the law. 
In Galatians 4, Paul speaks to both groups, Jews and Gentiles. So I think he could be using the term in different ways with each audience. Galatians 4, 1-7 likely addresses Jewish converts, those who are under the law, he says in verse 5. And stoiheion, in verse 3 here, refers most likely to the elements of the law. The use of stoiheion in Hebrews 5.12 seems also to refer to the principles of Jewish law. In other words, the whole Jewish system is going to be burned up. It's going to be gone. But the Gentiles were not under the law. And they didn't know the true God. Therefore, when you get to Galatians 4, 8 through 11, it could be seen as addressing Gentile converts. Verse 9, he says, But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? The Gentiles were never enslaved to the law. So what were they enslaved to? Well, in the context of Galatians 4, 9-11, through stoiheion could be translated as heavenly spirits, or astral deities. All right? They were enslaved to worshiping these false gods. Look what Paul says in Colossians 2.8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So here, stoiheion of the cosmos is element, elements of religious training. Doesn't seem to fit there at all. It's not talking about Judaism. He's talking about spirits here. Worshiping spirits. Colossians 2, 18-20 says, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going in detail about visions puffed up, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God, in which Christ... If, with Christ, you died to the elemental spirits, again, stoiheion, of the world, why, as if you still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? So here, in context, stoiheion, again, of the cosmos, would best fit with the idea of heavenly spirits. And the translators here, in the uh, ESV, you know, I think they got this right. Now, in the Dictionary of Deities and Demons in the Bible, which is a very thick volume, okay, talking about all the deities and demons in the Bible, it states this, Given the predilection of many people in the Greco-Roman world for astral religious beliefs and practices, it could also be argued that the elements are planetary or other celestial bodies, or that the elements refer to spiritual beings such as angels or demons who control earthly affairs and determine human destiny. Now, a number of interpreters, perhaps even a majority, have concluded that stoiheion of the cosmos here refers to spiritual powers of some sort. Uh, the Testament of Solomon, which is a Jewish Christian work, testifies to a belief in star spirits called stoiheia. Seven bound spirits appear before Solomon and reveal their identity. The Testament of Solomon 8, 2-4 says, We are stoiheia, rulers of this world of darkness. Cosmocrator. Our stars in heaven look small, 
but we're named like gods. Now, the cosmocrator, does that word ring a bell to anybody? It's only used one time in the Scripture. And that's in Ephesians 6, verse 12. We don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers, the cosmocrator over the present darkness. See, Paul's making it very clear here that by cosmocrator, he means gods. All right, not, We're not fighting humans. This comes from the Greek word cosmocrator, which according to Strong's Concordance means a world ruler, an epithet of Satan. Thayer says it means Lord of the world, Prince of this age, the devil and his demons. This is its only New Testament use, but it's used in the Testament of Solomon of spiritual beings. Paul knew that. So he's not going to use a word that's never used in the New Testament. It's used outside of spiritual beings if it doesn't mean spiritual beings. And if we understand the uses of stoicheion by Peter to be the same as Paul's use of it in Scripture, we can see that Peter was simply reemphasizing what the prophet Isaiah had said about the fate of the spiritual powers that were aligned against Yahweh. They were going to be destroyed. Isaiah stated the hosts of heaven would be dissolved. Peter says the same thing. The elemental spirits would be dissolved by fire. We also have an example in early Judaism where people use Psalm 82 to talk about the judgment of the gods. And that's what it does talk about. When they dug up Qumran, they found this text called 11Q Melchizedek. And it uses Psalm 82 to talk about the judgment of these gods. 11Q Melchizedek says, It is the time of the year of Melchizedek and of his armies. Now, by Melchizedek, they're referring to Christ. All right? The nation of the holy ones of God and the rule of judgment, as it is written about him in the songs of David, who said, now he quotes Psalm 82 here, God will stand in the assembly of the gods in the midst of the gods he judges. So this is talking about Christ who is the judge. And the 11Q Melchizedek text goes immediately into the next line and says this, To his aid shall come all the gods of justice. And so there's these good gods coming to the aid of Christ and destroying these bad gods. There's this battle going on in the spirit world. So Yahweh is saying here that he's going to judge the disobedient gods. That's what Psalm 82 is about. He's going to take away their immortality. Jeremiah says something similar in Jeremiah 10. Thus shall you say to them, the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish. Okay, you get that? you got God who made heaven and earth. Well, the gods that didn't make it, they're going to perish from the earth and from under the heavens. We see in Psalm 82 that Yahweh reviewed their performance as gods and judges over the Gentiles, and He condemned them because they were not ruling justly. Psalm 82, 8 says, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. Who is the God here referred to? Who is to judge these disobedient gods and judge the earth? Well, in the Septuagint, the word arise here is anistemi in Greek. This is the same term that's used in the New Testament every time for the resurrection. Peter used the word anistemi in Acts chapter 2. This Yeshua... God raised up an istomy, and of that we are all witnesses. So when he says, Arise, O God, this is a reference to Yeshua. This is a reference to the resurrected one. 
He is the God who arises and judges the earth. Now when Christ was on earth, it was clear to the demons that their end was near. We see this throughout the Gospels in Mark 1.24. What have you to do with us? A demon is talking here, okay? Carrying on conversation with Christ. Yeshua of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So the demon understood who Yeshua was and that he'd come to destroy them, right? Now, let me ask you this. Can you tell me what a demon is and where they come from? Okay. Many theologians, good, I'm glad you don't know, you're going to learn something today, okay? Whether you plan to or not, you're going to have to learn something, all right? Many theologians, a lot of Bible teachers have traditionally taught that demons are fallen angels, okay? Nope. (laughs) The Bible never offers a point-blank explanation of where demons come from. doesn't tell us. But, the Dead Sea Scrolls say they are bastard spirits. And the biblical text read in in its ancient context, tells us that demons are disembodied spirits of the dead Nephilim. Now, you know the Nephilim, sons of God, Genesis 6, came down, procreated with women. Alright, so you got a child that is half human, half divine. Right? When that Nephilim dies, the spirit lives on. That is the demon. That's where demons come from. Alright, dead Nephilim. Alright? The Nephilim are the product of watchers and the women. So demons basically are second generation divine beings. Now, first Enoch says this. And now the giants who are produced from the spirits and flesh. Okay? That's where the giants come from. You got the gods coming down, mating with women, spirits and flesh. Shall be called evil spirits upon the earth, and the earth shall be their dwelling. Evil spirits have proceeded from their bodies. Okay, when they die, Nephilim, these giants, die. They're half God, so the God part just lives on as demons. Because they are born from men and from the holy watchers is their beginning and primal origin. They shall be evil spirits on the earth, and evil spirits shall they be called. Alright, now, we've talked about Enoch in the past. Enoch is, I don't think, is should have been in the canon, but... Here's what's important about Enoch. New Testament writers quoted from the book of Enoch. Alright? So they thought it was important. The people of that generation understood this book and it taught them some things. So there's, I think there's a lot we can learn from this Second Temple literature. Because this is the context of the New Testament. This is what the Jews of the Second Temple period believed. Like I said, they quoted from it. Jude quotes from it. Peter quotes from it. So nothing is said in the Bible about the origin of demons. But there's quite a bit of information in the Bible about their destruction. Alright? Look at Matthew 8, 28 and 29. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? seems like these demons all know who He is, right? No question with them. The Pharisees, Sadducees didn't know who the heck He was. They had no clue, but the demons knew. And they said this, Have you come here to torment us before the time? 
So the demons understood the mission of Yeshua to destroy them. But the final words here, the time, presumably the time of judgment at the consummation of the ages. So when does this judgment of the gods take place? The psalmist and Paul connect this judgment to the resurrection and ascension of Christ. Look at Ephesians 1, 20-22. That He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church. He put all things under the feet of Christ. This is referring to the resurrection. This is Christ's dominion. This is His managerial ruling of all things. Well, Peter also speaks of the preeminence of Yeshua over all heavenly beings. In 1 Peter 3.22, He who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. So, Yeshua arose from the grave, He ascends to heaven, and He judged these gods. Verse 8 tells us that when He judged these gods, He inherited, remember He disinherited the nations, now He's inheriting the nations, He's bringing the nations back in. In Romans 15, Paul also connects the resurrection of Christ to the claiming of the nations. Romans 15.12 And again Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, and him will the Gentiles hope. So he is bringing back those nations he has inherited. He's judging their gods, and he's becoming their God again. The nations that Yahweh had given over are now being reclaimed, and this started at Pentecost. Pentecost is the undoing of the scattering of the nations that happened at Babel. Yeshua is victorious over the gods. Now, I hope that you're thinking, I always hope you're thinking, (laughs) but but I hope that you're thinking, if the gods were judged by Yeshua in His resurrection and ascension, why does Paul tell the Ephesians about 30 years after the resurrection and ascension that they don't wrestle with flesh and blood? But against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmocrator, over the present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul, therefore, tells the Ephesians believers around 60 A.D. that they're in a spiritual battle with divine beings. But if the gods were judged by Yeshua in His resurrection and ascension, why is there still a spiritual battle going on 30 years later? I'm going to answer that in a minute, okay? The victory of Christ over the gods was won at Calvary. But it was not consummated until the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Notice what Matthew writes. The stars, when are they going to fall from heaven? Immediately after the tribulation of those days. That's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. Right after that happens, then the stars are going to fall and the powers of heaven are going to be shaken. These cosmic powers, these spiritual forces of evil that Paul speaks of in Ephesians 6. We know this takes place in AD 70 in the destruction of Jerusalem. So what began at Pentecost was completed in the Holocaust 
of 8070 judgment on Jerusalem. During that transition period, we're moving away from the old. We're moving into the new. These gods are being dealt with. So Babel is reversed. And the nations are gathered. And now they're ruled by Yahweh. Now, a glimpse of this spiritual battle with the gods in heaven was given to several people in AD 70. You know, like Elisha's servant in 2 Kings 6, remember he goes outside and he's like, oh my word, they're surrounding us, the armies are everywhere. And Elisha says, don't worry, the ones with us are more than the ones with them. And he goes, what have you been smoking? There's nobody here with us. And he opened his eyes and he saw the spiritual forces and the chariots in heaven. Well, that happened to some people during A.D. 70. Josephus, who was a Jewish general, says that the destruction of Jerusalem, he wrote this, Besides these signs, a few days after the feast, on the one and twentieth day of Artemisius, he says, a certain prestigious and incredible phenomena appeared. I suppose the account of it would seem to be a fable, were it not related by those that saw it, and were not the events that followed it so considerably a nature as to deserve such signals. For before sunsetting, chariots and troops of soldiers in their armor were seen running about among the clouds. He's talking to a spiritual... Th- this is something happening during the destruction of Jerusalem. He sees this spiritual vision. And surrounding of cities... Moreover, at the feast, which we call Pentecost, that the priests were going by night into the inner court of the temple, as their custom was to perform their sacred ministrations, they said that in the first place they felt a quaking and heard a great noise, and after that they heard a sound as if a great multitude saying, let us remove hence. So that's Josephus' account, and he's, you know, he's telling what he saw. Now Tacitus, who was a Roman historian, Relating the same events, writes this, In the sky appeared a vision of armies in conflict, of glittering armor. A sudden lightning flash from the clouds lit up the temple. The doors of the holy place abruptly opened. A superhuman voice was heard to declare that the gods were leaving it. And the same instant came the rushing tumult of their departure. It's not a Christian, this is a Roman okay, historian. Eusebius, who was the bishop at Palestine, wrote this in the 4th century. He said, For before the setting of the sun, chariots and armed troops were seen throughout the whole region in midair, wheeling through the clouds and encircling the cities. So they're talking about this heavenly vision of armies and glittering swords and all this going on in the sky. They're given a vision They're given the ability to see into the spiritual realm and see what was going on. Now, in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 5, the author indirectly establishes the rulership of their world, their world prior to AD 70, by powerful angelic beings. He says this, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, Now, by saying that God will not subject the world to come to the rule of angels, he implies that their world was being ruled by angels, by these spirit beings. But their world ended in AD 70, and now we live in the age to come, 
And Satan and his demons have been defeated. Paul says in Romans 16.20, the God of peace will soon, and that actually does mean soon, crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Yeshua, the Christ be with you. So Satan, who I believe was the Roman heavenly spirit ruler, was destroyed. And that battle is over. Revelation 20.10 says this, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So the devil, he's thrown into the lake of fire. Now, okay, this is... This baffles me, so if you can help me out, help me out. Because we have some preterists who are teaching the devil is still functional today. He's still controlling things. He's still ruining things. Listen, they believe he's in the lake of fire. But he's ruling from there. So either the lake of fire is not a really bad place at all, if you can still carry on business, you know, which kind of me, it kind of gives you another impression, you know. What happens when you throw something into a fire? It's gone. It burns up and it's gone. All right, a lake of fire, you throw something in there, burns up and it's gone. So I don't understand for the life of me how the devil, but, you know, Christians got to have their devil. They need him around to explain things. Well, I mean, just look at the riots. Obviously, the devil's around, right? People, here's what you got to understand. Man is evil. To his core. Okay? He's evil. I mean, I know that. You know that if you're honest. Okay? Men are evil. And this is not about a black man being killed by a white cop. It's about free TVs. Get what you can. You know, what does that have to do with... Oh, i got to get off of that. All right. <laughs> but here's what I want. Okay, the devil was destroyed. So either if he's ruling, then the lake of fire doesn't mean the lake of fire and it's not such a bad place because people, we're going to go there, right, one day and we don't have to worry about it because when we get there, we can still run things and do stuff. It's confusing. But maybe, like I said, if someone can explain this to me and help me understand it, I'd be grateful, all right? But here's what I want you to understand. This spiritual battle is over. Christ was victorious. And those gods who rebelled against Yahweh have been judged and put, that's it. Now, he says in our text, immediately after the tribulation, that puts us in the context of AD 70. The stars are going to fall from heaven, the powers of heaven are going to be shaken. This judgment of the gods took place immediately after that tribulation. The gods who rebelled against Yahweh were destroyed, including Satan. So we're not fighting a spiritual battle like the Ephesians did, because that's just they're done. Now, we talked not that long ago about the armor of God, and I still think we need to put on the armor of God because we're still battling evil. A lot of evil out there. But it's man. And James says that. You know, people say, well, if the de- why are men bad if it's no devil? James says, every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. It's evil that men are. They don't need Satan to get them to be evil. We just come by it naturally. The battle's over, people. It's over. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the opportunity to look at Your Word this morning. Lord, I pray You'd give us understanding. Give us insight, Lord, into the text as we study it. And I pray You'd give us the heart of Bereans, Lord, that we would search these things to see if they're so. 
Father, I thank You that that spiritual battle ended. That we are secure in You. You are ruling. You are reigning. Help us, Lord, to understand that and to go forth victorious, sharing the glorious Gospel of the blessed God with all we come in contact with. We won, Lord. We won. Thank You for Your grace to us. Amen. Okay. Questions? Jeff, you got a question? Okay. <laughs> I'll, play, I'll play along. This is what they would say. Um, humans who get thrown into the lake of fire, being they're not immortal, would be perished. But Satan, who is immortal, would be eternally tormented. So still pulling levers and switches. In other words, he wouldn't cease to exist. He okay. still be there. Okay. But somehow, in all the torment, still is in control. Hmm. Well, again, that's that's what baffles me. He's in control. He's running things. He's doing things. He's causing all these problems, but he's in the lake of fire. And to me, that really nullifies the lake of fire of any kind of power or all. Why throw him there? You know, why not just give him a throne somewhere if he's going to keep on ruling? It's just a hotter office to work in. Oh, I <laughs> bad working conditions. Uh, got a question from Ken Orton. He says, I have read the works of Josephus. How reliable do you think his version of history is? That depends on who you ask. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, has, he has known to embellish things and you know, say some things that people you know, kind of question some of the history that he's got to say. I, I think for the most part, you know, maybe not every detail, but I, I think we have a fairly accurate you know as accurate as a man can be in recording these things. Okay, he, Like I said, he was a Jew. He defected, went over to the Roman side because he realized we're losing this battle. Okay, And then the Romans took him and said, okay, we want you to keep a record here what's going on. So he was going along with them in the battles and keeping accounts of things, so to speak. So I know there's a lot of people who question you know, the stuff that Josephus says. They just they don't buy it at all. But I give them some relevance. Thanks, Bob. Appreciate it. Uh, Tanya. Revelation 21.1, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and no more sea. I've heard Protestants explain the sea is either sin or the, that described in 2 Kings 25.13-16. What do you say it is? I, my understanding, and I, let me say this, let me preface this. I've never taught through Revelation. Okay, I'm really hesitant to give my opinion on things I haven't taught through because I haven't taught through, I haven't studied it in depth. But I see the sea there as referring to Gentiles. There's no more Gentiles, okay, in the new heavens and new earth. All right, we're all people of God. There's no more Jew and Gentile. That that's my understanding right now, which could be changed really quickly with a little information. Okay, so sorry I can't help you much, Tanya, but that's all I got. All right. Anybody else? You got that? You got Jack. Uh, Satan is usually used as an excuse to make mistakes. Yeah, people do blame him a lot. And, you know, what's interesting, if you go to like a Pentecostal church, you're going to hear a lot more about Satan than you will about Christ. Everything is about him. Everything, anything bad, anything bad happens, anything you don't like, 
It's the devil. I, I mean, I've literally heard Christians say, Satan gave me a flat tire on the way to church. He's just trying to stop me. And I'm like, wow, you must be really important. And he's coming along and giving, letting the air out of your tire. You know, I mean, too good. Now, here's, here's an interesting story that, uh, and we'll wrap this up, but I shared, we had a couple visiting the church years and years ago. They visited a couple times. Kathy and I got together with them at dinner, sat down, talked to them, sharing with them the preterist view. Here's what we believe. All right, I can see the wheels turning in her head, you know, like, whoa. and the, you know, she's kind of shocked, and, and I'm like, okay, what, what, what do you think? And she goes, what does this mean about the devil? And I'm like, he's toast. It's gone. It's done. Ash of history. Oh, that troubled her. Christ coming didn't trouble her. The devil being gone troubled her. Okay. All right. So we just kind of left it at that. So let that simmer. She came to me about two months later and says, I want to tell you how this view has changed my life. She goes, I had a lot of problems and I blamed them all on the devil. You took the devil away from me. So I had to take personal responsibility for these problems, and as I did, they've gone away. Because now instead of just blaming somebody else for my problems, I dealt with them. She goes, I can't tell you how my life is different. And I'm like, wow, that's incredible testimony. That's the power of truth, okay? And a lot of people, they do. You know, that Flip Wilson mentality, the devil made me do it. You get rid of the devil, guess what? Well, let's take responsibility for our actions. People don't really like taking responsibility, but that's where we're at. All right, we done? Um, let's come up here. We're going to close with a song we haven't done in a long time. Is it dry? Called Heal Our Land. Oh. <laughs> All right, wait a minute. I got a Bob, uh, Bob Cruikshank text me. He said, the sea also represented spiritual chaos. Leviathan was associated with the sea. That's true. The sea, I agree with that. Chaos. Just another way to look at it. <clears throat> Okay, the chaos is gone. Um, I agree with that, Bob. Thanks. Um, that's right. See, the sea represented the, the Gentiles and the Jews were afraid to death of the ocean. Afraid to death of water because that was the key to the underworld. So they didn't like it. 